So I think a key thing with standards is that it makes information available. You're actually codifying knowledge and putting it down on paper. And usually that is a solution to a particular problem. You know, and this, this fertilizes the ground for others in a figure of speech. You know, this, the fact that the knowledge is put out there, the way to solve a particular problem is put out there is extremely beneficial. It allows, you know, uh, what's the expression, a million flowers to flourish. You know, it, it creates a, a feedback loop. You can see how you did something and you can come back. Bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is on standards and international trade. There's a nice quote uh, by Sir Isaac Newton all the way from 1675 where he says that if I have seen further, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants. And I think this is very much the idea. Standards puts that knowledge in the public domain. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and I am with... Cindy Parakil. Hello, Cindy. How are you? Fine and dandy. And you? (laughs) Ruddy marvellous. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. And in this episode, we are looking at the relationship between standards and international trade, something we have promised for a while. In fact, in response to listener demand. Some weeks ago, we ran a social media poll asking you which topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. And standards and international trade came out on top. The other choices, which were nanotechnology, film and space, scored pretty highly too. So we may come back to those another time. Mm, Standards up the movies. I think we have to do that one, Matthew. I think we do. Now, the voice you heard at the top of the episode was Eric Verkstrom from the World Trade Organization, talking about the role of standards in trade. In the episode, he's joined by BSI's Frank Faraday. With Eric and Frank, we look at the relationship between international trade, trade agreements, and international standards. You could say that we sort out the TBT from the SPS, from the NTM, from the TFA. (laughs) You could indeed. Now, as well as breaking open those acronyms, we also have our standards desk of news and the latest of our My Favourite Standard. This time we hear from Richard Collin, formerly of BSI, but now External Affairs Director at UCAS, the UK Accreditation Service, an organisation we featured back in episode 29 of the podcast on Brexit. Richard gets all wistful about his favourite standard, EN71, Safety Requirements for Toys. Now, a reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the BSI Ed Pod and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, then please consider giving us a five-star rating. It really does make a difference to us being found via search and recommendations. Please also use the hashtag BSI EdPod to share us on social media. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes, or even ideas for future episodes, then get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. Are you a postgraduate studying at a UK university? Do you have a research idea or project that involves standards in some way? Well, if so, BSI Student Research Programme can help. The way it works is simple. We gain valuable information about an area of interest to our standards work, while you can benefit from mentorship to support your project and the chance to gain knowledge and exposure that may increase your future employability. 
to find out more about the program, including case studies of previously supported projects and how to apply, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. So, in this episode, our two guests are Eric Werkstrom and Frank Faraday. Eric is the head of the Technical Barriers to Trade Unit at the World Trade Organization. He joined the WTO in 1995 and has worked in several areas of trade policy relating to standards and regulations, including health, agriculture and the environment. Frank is the Senior Trade Policy Advisor at BSI, leading on issues from emerging UK trade policy and new trade agreements, and assessing how Brexit will affect the technical standards used for regulatory compliance and the wider quality infrastructure system in the UK. In this first part of our conversation with Eric and Frank, we speak to them about why we have the WTO, what is meant by international trade, and why standards bodies and standards matter for it. But we start with Eric's personal standards journey and Peruvian sardines. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the BSI Education Podcast. Thank you, Cindy. It's great to have you here. And before we go on to the topic of the day, which is standards and trade, and explore the rather complex relationship between the two, I'd really like to hear about your standards journey. Where did it all begin and where are you now? So my standards journey, that's, that's actually, it's a strange way of thinking. I never had my, my mindset on that I was in any kind of standards journey, but you are right, I have ended up in this area and the link between standards and trade. And I, I, I quite enjoy it, I have to say, but I hadn't expected that. Right. <laughs> I, I started by studying in Sweden agricultural economics. Mm -hmm. um, I went to start working at the WTO in the very beginning, in 95, and it was in the agricultural area, but quickly moved into the SPS agreement I uh, use an acronym, I know, that's the Sanitary, <laughs> Fight Sanitary Measures Agreement, Food Safety, Animal Plant Health. So that was my first, I think, contact with standards. And one of my first realizations that this was very particular was when I was at the Codex meeting and they were talking about additives and it was very, very technical. Mm -hmm. And I myself was trying to draw the parallels to trade. But I, that dawned on me <laughs> eventually, this, this relationship, and we'll talk more about it. Um, then I started working for the sister agreement in the WTO, which we call the Technical Barriers to Trade Agreement. And that's, so I had that team now within the TBT section okay. um, at the, in the Trade and Environment Division, strangely at the WTO. And here is where I, I really came into the topic of standards. Um, one of the ways I really understood how this is important to trade uh, was when I had to uh, work on or look at a dispute that was about a strange thing as sardines. Okay. It was Peru was exporting what it calls sardines to the European Union. This was in the early 2000s, but the European Union, it was, uh, it was called European uh, communities at that point, they mm -hmm. were saying that uh, this is not a sardine. So the big question was, well, what is a sardine? Yep. Is it the European version or is it the Peruvian version? This had a very big consequence um, on trade. Mm -hmm. And it came down to a standard, um, a codex standard actually, um, which had a listing of different uh, sardine species on which the Peruvian one was there. 
And the Europeans lost that dispute because they couldn't, in that sense, they were not using that international standard. So it meant a lot to Peru to be able to export. So this kind of, this, this is perhaps where I started the standards journey and its relation to trade. That's when I realized the, the importance of it. What a fantastic example to set the scene for this episode. It really highlights the importance of standards in trade. Yeah, I should jump in. Yeah, go for it. I, I gave a very, very superficial summary of, dispute, of that dispute. I'm sure there will be lawyers listening to that who will crucify <laughs> me. But the idea was simply to explain the importance of, of standards in, in trade and how international standards actually have a crucial role to play. Great. You've already dropped in some acronyms, TBT and SPS. <laughs> so I really look forward to coming back to that. Yes, so yeah. where do standards or why do standards matter in trade? If you could tell us a bit about that. Yes, so that's a, that's a rather good question. And in a way, you're asking two things, I think. It's both about trade and standards. And in a way, it's perhaps better to keep them separate to begin with. One can begin by asking why standards matters, and I think then the trade part is somewhat easier <laughs> to come back to. But uh, for me, uh, this, this issue of standards is quite difficult to explain. It's, it would be easier when you talk to people, especially when we travel, for instance, in developing countries, to explain the benefits of building a bridge, a school, or a hospital. But to say that they should be spending resources capital on investment in a standards body or developing the standards institution, sometimes it's quite difficult. So I think a key thing with standards is that it makes information available. Um, you know this. Yeah. <laughs> within it's a standard the invisible glue. <laughs> exactly. So you're actually codifying yes. knowledge and putting it down on paper. And usually that is a solution to a particular problem. You know, and this, this fertilizes the ground for others in a figure of speech. You know, this, the fact that the knowledge is put out there, the way to solve a particular problem is put out there, is extremely beneficial. It allows, you know, uh, what's the expression, a million flowers to flourish. You know, it, it creates a, a feedback loop. You can see how you did something and you can come back. So, in a way, it enables tinkering with ideas that are there and you can allow it to... to People, others to see what could be done better, you revise it, etc. So, in, in brief, I think that is a key benefit from standard, is this putting the knowledge down on paper. There's a nice quote uh, by Sir Isaac Newton, all the way from 1675, where he says that, if I have seen further, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants. And I think this is very much the idea. Standards puts that knowledge in the public domain. And this can be about very practical things. You know, it can be about cement, uh, how you make cement, how you make a light bulb to be energy efficient, how you use a, a flash drive or how you make that flash drive and how you use it. So it's not necessarily the invention we're talking about, but actually it's application, you know, how you use that innovation, so to speak, in a practical application in solving idea that has a commercial applicability. So, so the benefit of standards there is putting it in one place and make it accessible to others. Uh, I think we had in the, in the context of the COVID pandemic, a good example with respect to masks or even in general, a personal protective equipment uh, at the very, very beginning, 
Not everyone knew how to produce these, but standards were made freely available. Anyone could make them, knowing the instructions. In a way, standards is like a cookbook. You know, you can take one, take it out, and you you find out how to do it, and then you put that through. So this this is is one of the benefits. And probably you're wondering, well, then how how does this relate to trade? Well, it, in a way, to me, trade is. Is, is the engine, the machinery that drives the spread of these products. Um, that's what you have in the background. The fact that anyone can produce that mask or anyone can produce that flash drive because the instructions are there. Because we are competitive by nature, we'll try and make it better. We'll try and increase the quality. And you have a competition that drives up quality and often performance and down price. The price actually goes down with time. Just think of what a storage device costed 10 years ago to one that is today in terms of quality, respective price. So, so trade is actually, I find, the easier side. It's, it's mm -hmm. what lubricates the machinery to make sure that products are spread. Um, so do you think standards help sort of create a level playing field in trade? Yeah, level playing field is actually quite a charged idea in in trade circles, but I think stam standards provide a common language in, in trade. I think that's the way one can see it. So this is why the, the two major WTO agreements um, that are about standards, and I named the acronyms before, so SPS for sanitary and phytosanitary, so that's food safety and plant and animal health, TBT for technical barriers to trade. Those two agreements, they strongly encourage the use of international standards. It even goes a bit further in the sense that if a country is using an international standard, there's, there's, kind of, there's a presumption, it's rebuttable, and I'm trying not to be too legalistic here, but there is a presumption that says if you're using an international standard as a basis for, for a regulation, a requirement that you impose, on your trading partners, you're basically okay. You can be challenged, but you, you've, you've created a kind of a safe haven. So those two agreements, which came in 1995, in a way were quite powerful from that point of view. So a long story short, <laughs> I started by saying that, yes, uh, it's, it's standards themselves are quite difficult to explain the benefit of, but I think they're very powerful in terms of of putting information about how you solve particular problems in a place where everyone can see them, tinker and make them better. And then in the context of competition, um, as we have lower and lower trade barriers, this enables a competition that's good for quality and wants something that drives down price. There, there are of course negative sides too, but I think that is probably the, uh, a strong reason why um, WTO rules promote the use of standards. That's really interesting, Eric. Um, and you mentioned that between the two standards and trade, probably trade is a more easily definable um, element. So how would you define international trade, actually? Yeah, so that might seem like an obvious question for someone who yes. works at the WTO. <laughs> but um, I mean, if you take the word out international, which is kind of the easy side, and you, how do you define trade? Uh, it, this is basically something that we humans have done for a very long time. It's kind of in our genes. Even children do it from a very early age. It's basically 
me or you exchanging a product for something else. It can be money or many, many years ago it was another product. So it's basically an exchange you have. So when you have that level within a village, you know, within cities, within a region, within a country, it's trade. When you have it between countries, we refer to this as international trade. That's a very simple way of putting it. Um, I think what has happened over time, we have always traded in a sense, um, but over time we have had a much higher degree of specialization in trade. That, that's a word that often comes up when you talk about trade. Um, if you look very, very far back um, in a hunter-gatherer society, I think that most people in that society would know a lot about, uh, how would one put this, a little about everything. You know, you'd, you'd probably have to know how to hunt, you'd probably know how to fetch water to, to, to fix the clothes, etc. But then we have moved to today, and I'm making a very big jump, of course, where I think most of us, at least myself, we know a lot, very much, but about very little. You know, I am specialized in a very small part of what humanity is all about. You know, I, I can talk about standards, I can talk about trade, but if somebody asks me to produce the food I eat, or the clothes I have, I have on, or mm -hmm. even build my house, I. I'd probably go hungry and my family would be cold. It wouldn't work. <laughs> Absolutely. No. So, you know, we, so we probably do much more, less today and we trade more, so to speak. So you have this incredible specialization that has happened. And that means that we, as people and as countries, rely more and more on others for other products. So this, trade has taken on a very important part in our in our life. Yes, please. This, uh, this also ties in with the whole comparative advantage theory, exactly, no? Yes, that's, that's of course, exactly. behind that. Uh, yeah. But I think specialization is, is, is very much, often people talk about compar comparative advantage, etc. But I think one should put more emphasis on this fact that uh, that we, we as individuals and as countries have become good at doing particular things. Yeah. Um, and this reliance on others also brings back standards, you know, yeah. because we, I have to be sure that the food I eat is, is safe or that it's of good quality, same with the clothes. Or you know, if I visit my dentist, I, I really hope that he is certified. I trust that he's, his knowledge yeah. is good in a particular area. So. Yeah, or that trust, the brakes work yeah. in the cars. Exactly. And that yeah. element of trust is just so important and standards help um, build that. Yeah, and I think that trade is not only, like we said before, it's not only about goods crossing borders, but also the ideas and knowledge that come, come with them. And since you have so much movement, so the pool of information we have today that's out there is, is enormous. Um, this is a big benefit to society. So, what is the WTO and why does it exist? Yeah, the WTO, uh, um, well, basically it's an international intergovernmental organization. So, we set trade rules at the WTO, we oversee their implementation, we resolve disputes. So, you have those three functions at the core, negotiation, implementation and dispute settlement. But all of those revolve around this idea of trade rules. 
So the WTO is actually quite focused and has a rather narrow mandate in that it really looks at those, those, those disciplines for members. And our members are today 164 governments. We, the staff, we, actually the WTO itself is only based in Geneva, in Switzerland. We are 600 plus staff and the budget is around 200 million US dollars plus. So it's a rather small organization if you compare it to the FAO or the, or the World Health Organization, the World Bank. Um, the WTO, this, the system we have there, or it was, it was created as an answer to the World War II. That sounds quite dramatic, but I mean, the global rules that underpin our system there were a reaction to the fact that we should not repeat what led up to World War II, um, in the sense that is, uh, I think one one amazing important document that um, came out during the World War, during that time, was the Atlantic Charter. I don't know if you know about that, but that's the 1941 was a paper signed by both Roosevelt and, and Churchill. Um, Churchill had to cross the Atlantic in a very dangerous time to, to sign that paper. But during that, that critical period, there are two clauses, and one would have expected this to be more about the peace and what one can do about the war situation there, but two clauses emphasize the importance of global economic cooperation between countries to avoid the conditions that led up to the World War II, which had not finished at that point. Um, so it was, it was trying to seek a basis for economic cooperation to avoid protectionism and where you are, are raising uh, tariffs, so to speak, um, in an unnecessary way. So I think that, that was one of the, the main um, reasons behind this. And if you look at the, the GATT, uh, which was the general agreement on um, tariffs and trade. Um, that was the first one that came into force right after the, the Second World War in 1948 and lasted until 1994, some 47 years. Those, were, those, those core and central rules, uh, rules are what the WTO rule systems is actually based on today. So the 1995, which took over from that, yes, it broadened the scope of these rules, and we had then the, the two agreements on standards that I was talking about from 1995. But basically that those fundamental principles of the trading system, which were non-discrimination and transparency, those were set right after the World War as a way to try to get countries to engage economically. I think that was one of the major reasons, reasons that the um, WTO was created. So you mentioned there are 164 uh, members. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean for a country or let's say the government to be a member of the WTO? Yeah, well, at a, a member, membership of the WTO basically means you have a, you have a seat at the table. Okay. You're, you, will, you agree to the same rules as everyone else at that table. You have a right to, to know about what other countries do. You have a right to participate in negotiations, to raise disputes, and to engage in discussions in all the various councils and committees that exist. But above all, I would say it's, it's basically you are you're committing, so you have both rights and obligations um, within a system where all agree on a set of rules. So Eric, 
what does it mean for the private sector or companies of a country when they are a signatory of the WTO? I mean, the government being a signatory of the WTO. Yeah, so as you point out, it's the governments that are signatories. So the, the private sector actually don't sit at the, at the meetings themselves. It's only the government representatives. But of course, the private sector is what is being represented to some degree by governments, along with consumers, etc. And I think for the private sector, if we're thinking more of the industry now or companies within a country, For, for me, one of the biggest or important parts of the rule system as such is that it gives, a lit, it gives more predictability to the trading environment and it gives more transparency. I mean, you, you have rules that are binding the level at which governments can set a tariff. This is extremely important for a company to know. If, if they don't know that next year the tariff might go up 20% or 100% and down in another market, this kind of uncertainty is what works against trade. So the fact that this is set in a way where the time horizons are very far or, or long um, gives that sense of predictability and confidence and trust in the, in the international trading environment that, that helps them. Uh, in the standards area, just to make a parallel, because I use tariffs as an example, Um, when we talk about standards and the WTO, we're talking a lot about regulations and requirements that might differ across markets. So if you have an international system that actually says we should be harmonizing those requirements to the extent possible, and if you don't, you need to notify the WTO, which means a, a message that, that WTO circulates to all members, all governments that says that that and that country is about to increase their requirements on furniture or on electronics. That kind of transparency is very important to countries. So in brief, predictability and transparency, I think, are extremely important for the private sector. That was really insightful, Eric. Thank you. So just to recap, we spoke about um, what it means for a country or a government to be a member of the WTO and what the implications are on the private sector slash companies. And now finally, to the national standards bodies. So what does it mean for a national standard body of a country that is a member of the WTO. Are there any implications? Yes, I would, I would say there are. First, mm -hmm. I think the national standards body is a very important player within the broader umbrella, so to speak, or regula of a regulatory framework that a country has. So that can, can include the regulators. It will include uh, various trade ministries and departments, I'm also thinking of the private sector, but I'm also thinking of the quality instit institutions like accreditation, certification, etc. All, all of this together play a very important role uh, in terms of how you develop regulation in a country. And there, I think the standards body is, is in the middle. It's, it's a very important um, body in this work. And I think this is acknowledged in the WTO rules. The, There is an annex, a whole annex in the TBT agreement, uh, which is only for standards body. That is the, the code of good practice. And in fact, the precursor to the current TBT agreement was, was often called the standards code. So it was a body, a set of governing principles for standards bodies. So their role is central. And if you look in practice, um, I think that often the NSB, um, that's the national standards body, is, is the focal point for TBT matters in many countries. 
I think in about half of all WTO, 164 WTO members, um, the NSB is also the inquiry point, which means it's the go-to point for any question related to implementation of TBT. Sometimes it's also the notification authority. But these roles are split and it depends exactly on how each country is set up. Then I think, lastly, that I think a very important role the NSB has is that it is a stepping stone into regional and international standard setting work because it carries the voice of your government into the regional or maybe even more important uh, international context where these international standards are set and where, remember, and these are the international standards that will, will then be the basis for regulation that would be accepted around the world. So being there, having a voice, uh, putting your own priorities, carrying your flag, so to speak, in this context is, is extremely important. Now, that was the first part of our conversation with Eric, where he told us about his standards journey with the Peruvian sardines, what the World Trade Organization is, why it exists, and what being a member of the WTO means for the government, private sector, and the national standards body. We move on now to the first part of the conversation with Frank Faraday, Senior Trade Policy Advisor at BSI, to learn more about how exactly do standards facilitate trade. But like for Eric, I started by asking Frank about his own standards journey. Well, that's a really uh, a really great question. It's, it's actually quite complicated in my case because I, I came to standards about 13 years ago when I worked in the construction sector based in Brussels. So the um, one of the main um, contractor federations for, for construction. Um, I was in this job for about five years and, I, and that gave me a very sort of a really interesting, insightful um, uh, window into, into standards development, but a very particular one, I think. And, uh, you know, at the time I was really interested in the, the link between standards and regulation. But at that time, I didn't know that the uh, that, that, that link was actually a very, very small minority uh, of standards. So I was interested at the time in what's called the new legislative framework. And that's how within the EU standards support regulatory compliance. And um, so it, it took me some time and it, and, and it took me sort of to be introduced to the European sort of standards community and the national National standards body, national standards bodies that are members of SEMSENLEC, for me to sort of understand that there is a much broader world of of, of standards out there that have no you know no link to to legislation at all, and it's you know and it's not all about essential um, you know essential requirements and and and, and you know how um, how precisely the standard matches the the regulatory requirements, and and that th there's so much more to it than 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 regulation, and that was a great eye opener for me, and and I think it it, it sort of it, it, it brought home to me the, the, the benefits, um, you know, across the board of, 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 of standards and how they support organizations, not just businesses, to improve how they operate. And, um, and I think just as I, as I, you know, as my career developed and, I, and I've sort of been in and out of standardization for some time, I've, you know, I've worked for BSI on two occasions in two separate roles. But what I so loved about the process of developing standards 
standards. And, you know, I was, I've been involved in the work of some of the, uh, the European standards uh, committees. Was this sort of the search for accuracy and the value that's placed on real expertise and, and, and sort of having worked in the policy field where a lot is about politics and power dynamics, I felt that sort of emphasis on, on you know, finding what is true um, I found that to be really refreshing and, and something that I had an affinity to. So, you know, I think, when, you know, when, when we talk about the values of standards development uh, you know, at its best, it's that collaboration which I loved. And that's what, that's something that, you know, all the way through has been something that which I've really, really enjoyed about working in the standards field. It's collaboration from people of different backgrounds, different nationalities and interests. That search for compromise and consensus. And that's sometimes, you know, quite a difficult job. And that value that placed on it at the expertise and experience of practitioners and i call that substance over style and i think that's like mm-hmm. that's that's why i'm quite proud to say you know that i work in in the standards field and also i've made a lot of friends along the way you know, people in the european and international standards bodies and uh, um i think i've been immensely fortunate the passion in your voice really comes through and i think we can it's safe to say that you've been seduced by standards <laughs> I think I've been seduced by standards, and you know, it's the they are the unsung heroes sometimes, and you, yeah. you, you, you know, you you have to you you have to sometimes understand how standards are how standards bring that benefit, and you, yeah. there's sometimes a little bit of digging you need to do to understand um, understand what they bring, but once you do, it's a it's a great reward. Yeah, and this policy um, standards and regulation nexus that you were talking about, that's also really, really interesting. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So um, this may sound like an obvious question, but how exactly do standards facilitate international trade? So let's say I'm making widgets in Warwick and I want to start exporting Uh, them to Warsaw, or um, let's say I'm making honey in Ethiopia and I want to export it to London. Why should I really worry about standards? How, How do they help businesses? Well, they uh, in terms of how um, in terms of how standards support or facilitate international trade. I think the first thing to say is mm-hmm. that, um, and it's a bit of a caveat, really, Cindy, is that um, not all standards, you know, necessarily facilitate international trade. Standards can be um, they they can help, but they can also hinder, depending on on what the what the nature of that standard is. So, for example, if you have multiple different standards referenced in national regulation made mandatory which have sort of slightly different requirements or indeed if they conflict one with another um, to reflect you know national preferences or national interests then you know we can't say that that standard will be will facilitate international trade and before before globalization and before you had that great push to develop international standards from the sort of 70s onwards that was the reality you know you had national standards for national markets um, so standards really come into their own um, for international trade where where they are themselves international so what do i mean by this so you replace those multiple conflicting national standards with one international standard to cover any specific aspect of a product product component or service so it's really only by basing sort of your technical regulations uh, uh, at national level on international standards and then adopting international standards as national standards, the standards, in my view, can play their full role in reducing barriers to trade. 
So you have, you know, one international standard. What what are the benefits? You know, by having one international standard, you're, you're reducing the need to run multiple production lines. So you can, you, you, so you're you're saving money. Basically, the compliance related costs are brought down, which means that you can then reinvest that into more productive parts of the business. So such as product development and and innovation. So you know. Money saved by reducing your compliance costs can go directly, be channeled directly back into making a better product and can bring other benefits as well, you know, such as increasing efficiency through driving economies of scale or reaching new customers and new markets. And that leads to lower costs through more competition and benefiting consumers in those markets. So there's a, there's a real there are real benefits to using um, international standards that you know go above and beyond um, you know national standards. And that's what that's what we really sort of try and emphasise is the benefit of international standards for driving trade. That's really interesting. So you made two points there that not all standards facilitate trade and it's mainly international standards that facilitate trade. But at the same time, we do know that there are national and regional standards. So not all standards promote trade equally. Is that what I'm understanding? I think think that's the the key message there. Not all standards. And in some cases, regional standards have their place. You know, International standards do not cover every every product, every service on the market. So, you know, it's been clear that within Europe, and you've definitely seen the benefit there through the single market, through European standards replacing national standards. There's been a huge benefit in terms of the ability to do business across borders, and that's that's with you know even without the regulatory um, Mm -hmm. harmonisation that came through the European single market. But but Cindy, you talked about your widgets, and I, I, yes. I, I like the, I like this widgets from Warsaw, from Warwick to Warsaw, Warwick to Warsaw, Warwick to Warsaw, or Honey in Ethiopia, and I yeah. think that's a I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, international um, standards are you know we like to call them a passport to trade because yeah. they create this common this common technical language mm-hmm. that um, you know that promotes trust between between the producer the widget producer in in the midlands of england and the uh, and you know their customer in uh, in warsaw and i think the the benefit they bring is that they you know uh, rather than sort of having to comply with with different um, with with different standards, um, and in some cases also different um, technical regulations. There, you know, if those if those regulations are based on international standards, that will make it easier uh, for 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 that producer of widgets to to get their product onto the market in in Poland. Um, what honey is a bit of a is a is a bit more of a complicated question because there you come on to um, you know other areas of international standards. So international standards, yes, they cover what we call technical barriers to trade within the WTO system, but they also cover um, SPS measures. Now SPS are sanitary and phytosanitary measures, and you know with respect to honey, um, you will definitely find that you will have SPS. Uh, standards to deal with as well. So, for example, with your honey, things like your your maximum permitted acidity and your sucrose content, things like that are going to be covered under under measures linked to the safety of that product. And that's um, so 
for the WTO, both SPS, both the SPS agreement and the TBT agreement reference international standards. The main difference between the TBT and SPS measures is that SPS, the SPS agreement references specific international standardizing bodies, whereas the TBT agreement does not um, determine which um, international standardizing body will produce uh, what is a relevant international standard. That's really helpful. Thank you for that. You say that international standards are more effective in promoting global trade, but it may be helpful to the listener to understand what exactly is an international standard. Yeah. Well, I think the main characteristic of an international standard, and this is this is me speaking here as Frank, um, <laughs> is the governance of how that standard is developed. That is key. And, you know, how international consensus is reached, because you can have lots of standards that have different international input. You can have, you know, you can have standards where 98% of the participants around the table are based in one country. And, you know, you perhaps have a couple of experts from individual experts speaking on their own behalf from uh, from another country. And, you know, in, in certain circumstances, um, people may uh, pretend or, 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 or try and claim that that standard is international. So we have to separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, it isn't enough. It isn't enough for any process to be theoretically open to international participation from individuals. The governance system has to ensure that each WTO member, so every, every country has an equal opportunity to contribute to the development of that standard based on the legitimacy that comes through the national delegation. So it's not just Frank talking on Frank's behalf. It's Frank talking with a mandate from the national delegation to speak on behalf of all concerned stakeholders and interested partners, parties in that country. That is critical to ensure that the national position put forward is legitimate uh, within that country. And I think that's that's key to that's one of the sort of the main characteristics of of, of what can be considered um, an international standard. Um, so the main issue as far as trade is, trade is concerned, and, and this is where it comes back to the WTO, is that there isn't any unanimity globally on how international standards should be defined in the TBT agreement. So, you know, I, I spoke about the SPS agreement just, just now. The SPS agreement, which is another agreement under the WTO umbrella of, 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 of international agreements, the SPS agreement references three specific international standardizing bodies. By contrast, the TBT agreement does not do that. So this is a, this is um, an area of uncertainty in the international trading system for TBT. This means that the only guidance, the only the only guidance that there is at WTO level are a set of principles um, for the development of international standards that were developed in the year 2000. So these concern things like the transparency of the standards development process, how an international standardizing body is open to the relevant bodies of at least all the WTO members, very important, the impartiality of the standards development process, so making sure that all countries have an equal opportunity to participate in that process and the coherence of that, of, of that process. These, those aren't all the principles. Those are some of the main ones. And, you know, so you're ensuring that international standards are not overlapping. They're not conflicting one with another. So these are really important principles for determining international standard uh, within the WTO system, but they're not sufficient in our view. In our view, there, there should be, um, you know, it is critical that, that that principle of national delegation 
That legitimacy that comes through having um, standards developed through um, a legitimate process, both at national level to determine the national position and then the double consensus at international level as well um, is really important. But it, I think you know what what the international trading system needs is that consensus, a global agreement on on which bodies can be considered to be to develop international standards, because that would have I think a, a really positive effect in breaking down some of those technical barriers to trade around around standards. So I th- I think that you made a really strong case in terms of um, why we should be working towards international standards. But in order to really see the importance or the value add, maybe it's good to have a contrast here. So yeah. what would international trade be like if we didn't use international standards? So I, f- from what we we can read through the the academic literature on 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 the role of standards in trade and and it is quite scant um, mm-hmm. and through what we know about how trade was conducted sort of before globalization and indeed you know what how trade within the within Europe was conducted before the single market is that you know I, I think it's clear to say that we could not sustain the sort of the, the volume of trade that we have today if we didn't have um, international standards. So you know the shipping container and um, and uh, it was a great piece that uh, that you and Matthew did um, a couple of weeks back on the history of standards and there was a he did a great um, a great pressy a great you know a brief sort of his potted history on 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 the shipping container you know without the ISO standard to determine the basic dimensions of the shipping container you couldn't sustain a global shipping industry because you you need to rely on the exact numbers of containers that can be stacked how they are loaded onto the ship all those things that that, that sort of are dependent on that international standard being there so i think sometimes we underestimate the importance of of having those international standards for the whole system of trade that we take for granted today so you know the international standards that were developed in this area were all geared to respond to the needs of the industry so without that basic common technical language you know how could you sustain a global a global shipping industry on the same scale that we have so you you know the you'd go back to this sort of system of stevedores and and, and, and you know very labor intensive loading of different you know different types of cargo onto ships at ports which is completely incompatible with with the reality of, of trade as we know it in the 21st century so you know uh, you know without international standards we wouldn't have the, the devices that, that, are, that are commonplace you know the iphones the tablets the laptops that all that tech that we that we have in our homes you know we wouldn't have if there were international standards in place you know apple samsung they're not going to produce a device uh, for you know different sort of hundreds of different iterations of a device for different segmented national markets that that, that just simply won't happen so I think what would ha- what you would see if we didn't have international standards would be much more restricted trade, be much more expensive with much less choice for consumers. I think that that's the big the big message. And what I actually think would happen was would be you would have a sort of a wild west of 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 um, of standards development with sort of big power blocks competing with each other, China, the EU, um, you know, the US, imposing their own standards as part of trading relationships. So much more sort of um, a, a much less governed system. And I think that would be quite you know catastrophic for countries like the UK, where we are fully involved and fully influential in in the international standard system as we know it. You know, just to just to say the ISO. 
the UK has the most participating experts in ISO technical committees. Now that's a huge amount of influence that we have in the international system that would just, you know, that wouldn't be there if those international standards weren't in place. So, you know, what I ultimately think though is if the international system disappeared, somebody would have to reinvent it. Because <laughs> it's because it's so essential. It's so essential for how we live today. Cindy, it's that time in the episode. Shall we have the standards desk of news? Let's do it. Cybersecurity in cars. As cars get more connected, so the risk of cybersecurity breaches increases. But a new international standard designed to help manufacturers get one step ahead has been published. ISO 21434 Road Vehicle Cybersecurity Engineering defines the vocabulary, objectives, requirements and guidelines related to cybersecurity engineering for a common understanding throughout the supply chain. The standard was developed in collaboration with SAE International, a global association of engineers. The Great Space Cleanup There are around 900,000 pieces of space debris, such as old rockets and satellites, floating around up there, posing serious risks to space missions. World leaders at the G7 earlier this year called on all countries to work together to clean it up. The recently launched Space Sustainable Rating aims to improve the health of the near-Earth environment. This global initiative has been led by organizations such as the World Economic Forum and the European Space Agency. ISO standards such as 24113 and ISO 26900 are among the suite of international guidelines used in this industry-wide approach. And finally, bringing safe products to market. The new standard PAS 7050, Bringing Safe Products to Market, is now out for public consultation. Sponsored by the UK government and with input from BSI's CPIN, the standard gives recommendations for the management of internal systems and supply chains in the delivery of safe products to consumers. It's being developed for a wide range of businesses, including manufacturers, designers, importers, distributors, repairers and operators of online marketplaces. You better look sharp though, The closing date for comments is the 27th of September. To have your say, visit standardsdevelopment.bsigroup.com and search PAS 7050. And that's the Standards Desk of News. My favourite standard. Today's My Favourite Standard comes courtesy of Richard Collin. At the time of recording, Richard was Head of National and European Policy here at BSI. He's now taken up a new role as External Affairs Director at UCAS. Here's Richard getting wonderfully wistful and misty-eyed about EN 71 Part 1 Safety Requirements for Toys, Mechanical and Physical Properties and the impact that it's had on his entire career. I started my career towards the end of the 1980s, working for Avon County Council Trading Standards. Then my job was enforcing UK consumer protection law, law on weights and measures, on fair trading, on product safety, on food and animal feed. And as an inspector, every day I'd walk up and down high streets, I'd visit in shopping centres, I'd travel to country villages. And in doing this, I carried with me some essential kit. I had a bag of weights for testing scales in those days, in pounds and ounces. I had bags and sealing equipment for taking food samples. I had advice leaflets. And I had what was called a truncated cylinder. 
The truncated cylinder was a tool based on the measurements in EN 71 Part 1 that was made to represent a child's throat. It was a standardised child's throat. And if I found parts of a toy that were detachable with a certain force, which I approximated with a good tug on them, and then they fitted into the cylinder, I could be pretty confident that they wouldn't be the standard. And then I could use that as a benchmark to say that this toy was probably illegal. Then I'd seize the toy, I'd look to get it tested, all with a view to getting unsafe toys off the market and protecting the public. And this EN 71 Part 1 standard was new. It was based on and replaced the old British standard, BS 5665. It was one of the first standards that I was familiar with. And how a screening test with this truncated cylinder for that standard helped me to see whether toys were legal or not was the beginning of my understanding of the relationship between standards and the law. And in many ways, it's been with me through the 30 plus years since then. I left trading standards in 2000 and was seconded by the British government to Hungary, where I worked helping to develop their product safety enforcement regime. One of the main areas they worked on was toy safety. I talked to inspectors there a great deal about EU toy safety law, about the, how the European standard, also adopted by the Hungarian standards body, was no longer mandatory, but helped show conformity to the law, and about the benefits of using screening tools like the truncated cylinder. After Hungary, I moved to Brussels. I worked in the European Commission, and there I, I, I worked with many requests that were sent from the Commission to the European Standards Organisations to develop new standards or to improve standards. Two of these improvements were for EN 71 Part 1, looking to strengthen the standard on magnetic toys and on toy T-sets. These mandates, these requests, as they were called, helped me to understand the detail of the way in which standards respond to changes in public policy to enable compliance with the law. So now, over 30 years since I first encountered EN 71 Part 1, I'm at BSI. And my current focus is on what the UK's departure from the EU means for the way in which standards, in particular European standards, interact with UK regulations. Much of this is about how regulations will diverge between the UK and the EU and how that then will impact upon the standards that we have in the BSI National Collection. Some of this will be deliberate, of course, deliberate divergence from the UK. Some of this will come though when EU law changes and UK law doesn't move. And recently, we've had an example of what you might call this passive divergence. We've had a change to the EU Toy Safety Directive, just announced, a change to the limit value for aniline in toys. And this kind of minor change is really important for us to understand what Brexit will mean for standards. Does this affect EN 71 Part 1? How will the standard and, and the regulation continue to fit together? What does this mean for the UK regulation when UK governments are looking to, to regulate for, for the markets in Great Britain? And we're going to look into that. So my favourite standard, EN 71 Part 1, mechanical and physical properties of toys. This standard has featured at important points in the four main parts of my working life, through three countries and across now five decades. It's helped me to understand that complex relationship between the law and consensus-based good practice tools, which we call standards, which is one of the defining points of my career. And today, thinking about this, it takes me back to a very different world. It takes me back to a very different person. A young, 
a newly qualified trading standards inspector setting out in the world in Western Supermare in 1992, armed only with a brown leather bag of weights and a truncated cylinder. We now return to our conversations with Eric Rickstrom and Frank Faraday. In this second part, we look at issues of international standards and national government regulation, digital trade, and the role of standards in UK trade policy and trade deal negotiations. Oh, and Harry Potter. And Carl Drones. So, Eric... How do international standards fit into the WTO? Um, I mean, earlier you mentioned um, the GATT, TBT, SPS, and then there's a trade facilitation agreement as well. So how does that all fit together? Yeah, that's, a, that's also another good question because even after so many years of being enforced, the TBT and SPS agreements, mm-hmm. there is always a lot of confusion between why we have two agreements on standards and now a third. You mentioned the trade facilitation it's growing. Agreement. It's growing, yes. <laughs> but I guess stepping back just one, one moment briefly, um, yep. the reason we have these agreements at all in the first mm-hmm. place is that over time um, tariffs have come down. Today, they're still important, of course, but they're not as significant as they were 40 years ago. I mean, we've gone from 40% to 10%, and in fact, uh, don't rely 100% of those figures, but most most tariffs today on industrial goods are below 5% in important countries. So there's a lot more focus today on what we call non-tariff buyers or NTBs or NTMs, yeah, non-tariff measures is a, another way of saying it. No, that's right. There's sometimes we talk about buyers or measures. So that's where these these agreements come to play. And it started with something that was called aptly the Standards Code um, back in 19... This was the result of a Tokyo Round negotiation in 1979. It came into force in 1980. But that was a, that was a smaller plurilateral agreement between some 40-plus or minus countries. Um, plurilateral in WTO would mean that it's only among some countries. But that was kind of the precursor of what would become later um, the WTO, Technical Buyers to Trade Agreement, and SPS Agreement. So we call them, in a way, the sister agreements. They came into force in 95. They were entirely based on that original standards code, but they were upgraded and, and revised. And basically, they got two different mandates. So it, it's, it's difficult to explain, but but if you think of SPS, Sanitary and Phytosanitary Measure, that agreement is really focused on food safety, animal, plant life, and health. And putting it very simply, the lawyers won't like it. Everything else is TBT, Technical Buyers to Trade. So in that sense, Technical Buyers to Trade is very, very broad, um, while the disciplines on food safety, um, animal, plant life, and health are, are much narrower. And, it, and then why did you have two? You know, why couldn't you just have one? Well, they're, they're a little bit different in that the disciplines for food safety, animal plant life, or health um, have a lot more emphasis on science. So you, you've got to base the measure on science. That, that doesn't mean you don't need science for all other standards. Of course you do. But there's more emphasis on the food safety part because it, was, it affected agriculture. So one has to go further back. So the, the ag- agriculture agreement, when that came into force at the same time in 1995, 
there was a feeling that you needed another agreement that would make sure that when you brought down tariffs and subsidies in the agriculture area, so you restricted those abilities for countries to protect their agricultural sectors, they wouldn't use other, other measures. So maybe the tariff on beef went down to 10%. But then maybe a country would say, well, we won't import your beef because it's got this and this disease. In that sense, it's a very powerful restriction. So how do you make sure that that is based on, on science? So there was that kind of um, dilemma behind it. I didn't say anything about TFA. Shall I say something about that? Yes, please. Yeah. The third okay. one in the mix. That, yeah, that, that came much later. So um, that uh, was agreed in Bali 2013, went into force a few years later. And that one is much more focused on um, simplifying trade procedures at the border. It's more about red tape. It's more about avoiding unnecessary documentation, too much time, having a single window for inquiries, etc. So it's an agreement intended to facilitate trade, but it won't necessarily go into the requirements themselves, where you would have typically a food safety or SPS or another kind of requirement under TBT. And it's language perhaps reflecting the fact that we have more members now, um, than we did in 95 is a little bit more flexible, it's softer. In the TBT agreement, you actually have a provision that says you shall use international standards, while in the trade facilitation, it talks about encouraging the use of international standards. So the, the overlap, some have wondered about the overlap, and I think the best way to see this is that the trade facilitation agreement, it adds rights and obligations in terms of timing and uh, documentation, but it cannot detract from those rights and obligations that are already there under TBT and SBS. Thank you, Eric. That was really interesting. It really clarified in my mind the differences between the agreements. But now moving on to one of the WTO's core functions, so which is to resolve trade-related disputes. Let me ask, are standards a reason for dispute at the WTO? Yeah, one issue with that question is um, the confusions that there sometimes is between standards and, uh, and regulations, or what we refer to as standards, which are voluntary uh, from the point of view of WTO, and technical regulations, which are mandatory. So because, because the WTO is, a, is an international intergovernmental organization, we, we tend to be more concerned with what governments do. So how they regulate in a way which is mandatory. And when I say mandatory, I mean that, well, unless it fulfills these and these requirements, the product doesn't enter the market and that's it. So that's a mandatory technical regulation. So most of the problems that arise um, at the WTO having to do with regulations are, of course, when they are mandatory, they're too restrictive, they're discriminatory, intransparent, uh, etc. So then, the question is, where is the line between what is voluntary and what is mandatory? And here, each government is very different. Um, some governments are quick to mandate, putting lots of requirements, um, while others are much more laissez-faire, meaning that they stand back and let the market take, take part of it. But I think there is general agreement that there are some very good reasons to, to regulate, and that is for the protection of human safety, the protection of animal health, the protection of the environment. These are actually all 
explicitly stated in the text of the agreement. So for that, you will have regulations which are based on standards, but which are, are mandatory. And then there are many, many other areas where industry will go rightly its own way, where they may have requirements about uh, standards on sustainability uh, um, or, or organic products, basically giving, giving consumers a, a whole range of choice, which is more quality related. So uh, the, the, the difficult line to draw, as I said, is here's where, where do governments step in? And that sometimes can be controversial. So where would a government step in and make a standard the basis for technical regulation, so making it mandatory? And there, I, there was an example a friend brought to my attention just the other day. He was reading one of the Harry Potter books to his daughters. And, uh, and it was about... Um, the Department of International Magical Cooperation and the thickness of cauldron. I'm not sure you say that cauldrons. Yes, exactly. Cauldrons. cauldrons yeah. So uh, here it was either Ron or Percy or Harry. I'm not sure who was who was saying something about imported cauldrons that they were too thin, that they were leakages, uh, and then the, the discussion was, oh, but we should have an international law imposed to avoid the market being flooded with these substandard products that were flimsy shallow bottom and then actually in the book you have um, JK Rowling using the words it could seriously endanger so you actually have something almost directly from the TBT agreement so you you would actually have the legitimate objective of protecting human health would be the reason for the Department of International Magic to step in and impose international law. That's but really think, interesting. Yeah, it is and I think if she had if she had read up a little bit more on the TBT agreement, she would not have said international. She would have said international standards. Oh, With, yes. <laughs> see, that, see, that's where the inter international standards come into place because what, what the TBT and the WTO agreement says is that when you do regulate in mm -hmm. such a manner that it causes, uh, that it is mandatory, you should use international standards. And that's a very strong encouragement that actually exists in that in this international agreement. Therefore, the increasing importance of international standards and, and so, using these, yeah. using, Sorry, these inter, yeah, using just, just to finish up with it, using these international standards, I think then would have the benefit of increasing the quality, the trade, the confidence in these, in these cauldrons, for example. That's that's really interesting. So you mentioned the what what was it called? Department of International Magic Cooperation. That's right, yeah. So maybe our Department of International Trade could learn a trick or two from them. <laughs> yes, they could. They even sound like similar similar acronyms are DIMC and DIT. Yeah. <laughs> but wrapping up maybe because maybe we lost our audience on, on the quest, you yes. actually posed the question, do standards cause disputes? And I would put it this way that if everyone base their mandatory regulations on their own national standards which were different, yes, we would have a problem. But if they did follow the, the general the thrust of the WTO agreement, um, if they, they are basing their mandatory national uh, regulations on international standards, such as the one that Harry thought should be imposed on, on cauldrons, you would have much, much less scope for disputes because people would be basically speaking the same regulatory language. And that's the whole idea behind international standards, that encouragement to, to follow that work.
Thank you so much, Eric. That was such a nice example. I love how you just tied in Harry Potter into this. Um, I hope our listeners will remember this. Thank you. (laughs) Now, moving on to the next question. What is the relationship between the WTO and standards organizations? So, um, if if I were to give a very legal answer to that, then, um, but what you have in both the TBT and the SBS agreements in the rules is um, an obligation for countries to use international standards. It's, it's not really towards standards bodies in that sense, but it's simply an encouragement to use them. Of course, this makes the work of these bodies very important. Um, before the, these agreements came into force, um, their link to trade and their link to international trade policy wasn't as clear. For instance, very few people knew, knew what the Codex Alimentarius Commission was. But now you have WTO rules that say if you're going to put food safety rules in place, you need to use the standards of Codex. So in a way, the WTO has delegated out or contracted out the work on setting these requirements to another body, and it's a dynamic link out. It's, it's quite a smart way of doing it because at the WTO we could never set those standards. We don't have that expertise. So that's from a perhaps an overly legal perspective. Um, from a practical one, what I can say is that uh, these bodies are observers at the WTO committee meetings. Um, we have a lot of cooperation with them. They work closely often with inquiry points. Uh, when we do our technical assistance and capacity activities, we often involve international standardizing bodies, among them, for instance, the, the ISO. And what role do standards play in international trade deals? Quite a relevant topic for us. <laughs> yeah, um, well, international trade deals, that in a sense is the WTO too. Yeah. <laughs> it's an international yes. trade agreement. So um, in, what, what you see increasingly is that in agreements outside of the WTO, so regional trade agreements, preferential trade agreements, depending on how you want to call them, um, they now often have separate chapters on NTMs or non-tariff measures, and particularly they could have a TBT chapter or an SPS chapter. And what these chapters often do is that they will they will incorporate or refer to the TBT agreement and perhaps add more. So you have a TBT plus or an SPS plus. And, and sometimes they look at the work of the committee at the WTO on developing guidelines and incorporate that in the regional context. An example, maybe I was being a bit too diffused there, but within the committee, there were some principles set on international standard setting. We call them the six principles. And those are just recommendations in the context of the WTO. But some regional trade agreements have incorporated them and made them binding within the regional context. So in a sense, they have added a TBT plus. So I think that's what I would say in answer to that question. Thank you. This has been really interesting. Um, And I have one final question to you, which is regarding digital trade and e-commerce. So how is this whole aspect of digital trade being dealt with at the WTO? Yeah, so this is a broad question. And it's funny you bring it up now because I was listening to a um, an interview online with the Economist and our new Director General, Dijin Ngozi, yeah. 
And uh, I listened she, to it as well. <laughs> and you may remember she actually said, this is an area where the rules need to be updated. Exactly. So I could stop there. <laughs> we can pick it up in another future episode. <laughs> but, but maybe I would just mention that it does pose a challenge. And, yeah. you know, there, from, from a procedural point of view, um, there is a negotiating track that has been there since since 97. Mm -hmm. um, there's a work program on e-commerce. One of the main points there is to to enforce and to keep a moratorium on the use of tariffs on, on e-commerce. So that's one thing. There is the, this is the multilateral track, and there is also this this issue comes up in the TBT committee, Trips Council. Uh, it's a very frequent issue that that is raised. Then, in addition, you have a small track or small so 80 countries, and this is something that uh, RDG was talking about. Uh, there are major economies that are involved in looking at whether there is potential for new rules in this area. And that's more a data flow, storage, cybersecurity, e-certificates, etc. So there's a lot on the table there, but that's that's ongoing. So I wouldn't want to comment too much more on that. But if you look at, just to give the, the listener perhaps an idea of why this is a particular challenge, um, one has to go back and we started this conversation talking about why you have WTO and of course a lot of these rules in the gut time and then WTO they were they were worked out for goods or products that are, are tangible. We, we didn't really have in our mind something that could be traded and be intangible. So if you have an, a book appearing on my Kindle or any other e-reader device um, how, how do you regulate that? Or, or worse, I mean, no, not worse, it's not bad. <laughs> but, but if you had a, if, if I one day have a 3D printer and I actually print a product at home, I've actually moved the factory to my house and I'm actually producing something, it never crossed the border. There was no check anywhere. So there is, there is a proposal on the table in the TBT committee now looking at exactly this. So how, how should we ensure safety, conformity with requirements and standards. When the product never crosses a border, you cannot check it on the shelves. How do you perform market surveillance in this area? So it raises many challenges. How to deal with them is still somewhat an open question. And it really goes back to that initial point that you were making around trust, right? I mean, with traded products, at least there is, I mean, with physical products, there's at least something tangible. Whereas here, that element of trust really needs to be ingrained and there needs to be this kind of invisible infrastructure that helps create this um, element of trust and potentially standards could play an important role in um, establishing that level of trust together with the whole quality infrastructure system, obviously. Yes, I, actually, I think the last point you made there is the, is the crucial one, is the quality infrastructure, because yeah. the only way you're going to ensure that trust is to go to the exporting country or have trust in the system used by the exporting country, because you're not going to see it in yes. many cases before exactly. it comes in. So there are rules to that effect already in the TBT agreement, which is which dates back to 95. So some some members at the WTO or delegations simply want to say, well, let's just explicitly say that these rules should also apply to digital products. But is that the easy way out? Is that in principles? It's not that straightforward, is it? <laughs> it may not be that straightforward. So the principles, I think, should be the same. Transparency, yeah. non-discrimination, necessity. 
but there may be aspects of this trade that might need to be looked at more and more carefully. So I think that's something that's coming. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric. This was really enlightening and I really enjoyed this conversation with you. Um, so thank you. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Now, talking of digital trade, BSI recently published a white paper on the role of standards in supporting the transition to a digital economy and facilitating digital trade in developing countries. Developing countries are investing in digital technology, but only at half the rate of their developed counterparts. The paper identifies that an important barrier to uptake is a lack of trust in digital technology and suggests that international standards are the missing keystone in the bridge to a digital economy. The publication of the white paper followed BSI joining the Global E-Trade for All Network led by UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. To read the white paper, visit bsigroup.com and search digital trade. So Frank, how has BSI's relationship with the UK government changed as a result of Brexit? I would definitely say that Brexit has been a huge game changer in how BSI approaches government for the for the simple reason that that you know since the start of the year um, the UK government uh, and actually the devolved administrations not just the UK government have um, you know recuperated a whole swathe of policy making responsibilities um, with you know huge significant number of policy fields coming back from the EU. So that's been a, you know, a massive opportunity for, for BSI to have new conversations with government about how standards can support um, UK government and devolved administration policy ambitions. And I think that's you know, a big part of what the standards policy team are doing at the moment is, is around you know, talking to government about, the, about how standards can, 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 support, um, can support their policy ambitions. So the you know obviously as far as trade is concerned, you know, the development of a of an independent UK trade policy and the approach to the WTO and the various agreements that come under that umbrella are hugely important to to BSI. Um, you know, one part of our future focus will be supporting um, UK government in ensuring, you know, that in how it chooses to be compliant with the WTO TBT agreement that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. You know, it is is done in such a way that you know that we maximise the UK interest. Uh, so I think that's you know, so I think from the trade perspective, that's 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 really important. And sticking to all things about trade yeah. so what role do standards and bsi play in trade deal negotiations well i think it's worth saying at the start that, that bsi um doesn't negotiate trade agreements by itself and yes. you know we're not directly involved in in trade negotiations but we do support the government through a number of different channels so our director general scott steedman sits on the government's strategic trade advisory group that's a high level um, strategic group that, that informs the development of, of trade policy more broadly. Um, we also sit on a thematic working group on technical barriers to trade um, that was set up by the Department of International Trade and out, actually at BSI and other stakeholders' suggestion. So we, mm-hmm. we were quite instrumental in that group being established. Mm-hmm. And I think we we're really pleased that it was set up because it's, it's a forum to discuss specific TPT related issues. I think one of the, one of the, um, challenges that we find is that, that, you know, government sort of knows that TBT is important, yeah. but, you know, it, it, it does seem to be easier to talk about tariffs 
easier to talk about rules of origin, easier to talk about quotas. Um, and, and TBT sometimes gets sort of put still gets put in the too difficult box. And what you know, what we keep saying to government is that mm-hmm. you know actually the biggest the biggest hindrance to global trade is isn't tariffs. It, it is those mm-hmm. all those sort of issues around compliance, around around technical regulations, around standards, around transparency, conformity assessment. All those things are actually uh, a much more significant. Um, barrier to, to to trade. And you see that with the number of specific trade concerns coming through the WTO. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> so we like that. Really, really, really pleased that this, this group was set up. Oh. And we but I think what's what's really important is the is the very good sort of um, working relationship that we have on a sort of daily basis with officials within the Department for International Trade who we talk to on specific, you know, uh, specific trade negotiations that's so we, we we are you know we're embedded sort of within within dit and other government departments you know looking at trade it's not just dit the bays the business department who's our sponsoring department also has a trade team and we're quite interested in talking to them on on some of those trade issues as well um so you know coming back to what role do we play in, in trade negotiations and what role do standards play so we talked about the si what about standards well standards tend to play a small but quite important role in trade agreements. So they they tend to appear mostly within the chapter on technical barriers to trade. So alongside things like um, a common understanding on how um, you know how uh, technical regulations should be drafted, how your conformity assessment procedure should work, um, issues around transparency of, of, of regulation and, and, and you know what kind of notice period you should put in place before enacting um, regulations and the opportunity for trading partners to influence that regulation. So it, it depends. Sometimes bilateral agreements um, don't go much further than what's in the WTO TBT agreement, and you simply have, you know, basically a restatement of the of the WTO TBT provisions. But other times they can go much further and add more detail. And um, you know, one example of where TBT provisions in a trade agreement go much further or quite a bit further than what's in the TBT agreement, is the definition of international standard in the the trade and cooperation agreement between the UK and the EU. Now, I mentioned the definition of international standard before as being one area that the WTO, the the TBT agreement, doesn't have or doesn't um, give detail on. So, you know, it's, it's really quite helpful that we have within the TCA much more detail on what is it or what is considered to be um, uh, an international standard. Um, so, you know, in the case of the TCA, we have a definition that includes those international standing, standardizing bodies such as ISO and IEC, but also allows others so long as they operate on the basis of either sort of government representation or national or the national delegation. Now, the national delegation is key for us here because, as I said before, that is the, the key characteristic of an international standard. So in our view, this is a real sort of good balance. It get, it, it, it's the it's the right it's the right approach, um, and you know it sets that clear understanding of what is an international standard, and that carries that legitimacy um, that comes through the national delegation. So how do you ensure that consumer interests are protected when it comes to negotiation yeah. of trade agreements? That's that's really important. 
And I think there's a couple. There's a couple of things here. Um, you know, the, I think the main issue for me, and what I think what preoccupies me the most in 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 trade um, uh, negotiations, is this is ensuring that the model that we have in the UK of you know stakeholder driven standards, where all parties have a seat around the table, and where the national standards body is responsible for sort of curating that process and making sure that that um, that involvement happens, including consumers, is not undermined in any way through an attempt to um, strike a trade deal. Now, some of our trading partners, and the the US is the big one here. I didn't want to mention the US, but I feel I might have to. Um, you know, they they have a quite different approach to standards, a very different model. You know, and that is that's rooted in their in in, in their history. Um, so, for example, the US doesn't have a national standards body as such. And you have multiple standards development organizations that that work to, um, uh, in a way, almost compete to have their own standards cited and made mandatory in either federal or state level um, regulations. Now, the the risk in that approach is that it's harder for the consumer voice to to be um, to to sort of cut through in, in in that much more sort of competitive process, and you know BSI's role as NSB is is very different here. We, you know we we have a an almost you know statutory um, through our memorandum memorandum of understanding with government we have a duty to ensure that the the consumer voice is heard and the the benefit of having those sort of the, the one national stand you know the one national standard model is that you have a much easier it's much easier for the for consumers to influence that process the risk is in a trade deal, if you start to confer some kind of legal advantage or you give recognition to um, other country standards that haven't been developed through the international system, is that you undermine the uh, the ability of UK stakeholders to influence um, UK st- you know standards that, that apply on the UK market, and that you in a way you're disincentivizing uh, manufacturers from using the national standard that um, that you know ensures that all those who are interested in in its development and its provisions uh, have had an opportunity to influence that process. So that's one thing that we're we're really quite. Um, uh, keen to get right in in trade negotiations. Now, obviously, consumer interest groups, you know, like which and like the National Consumer Federation, are themselves involved with the the government strategic trade advisory group, and um, you know that they're involved in other groups too within the um, within the sort of the, the or the the stakeholder groups that have been that have been established. Um, but we're looking to work more closely to align our positions with 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 groups such as which um, I think that's going to be really important, especially as we look um, as you know it, it talks with the US um, mm-hmm. you know, at, the, at the moment they're they're on hold, but at some point they will resume, and the question of um, of of standards and TBT will come back to the table. So we're we're, we're very keen to have a to have a very um, close understanding with consumer groups on on those questions. Excellent. So one last question from my side. Uh, you made it very clear that BSI does not take part in the negotiations per se. However, what does success look like for BSI from trade agreements? 
I think getting a few basic things right is really important uh, within trade agreements. Obviously, you know, I, I think the risk is always that with 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 trade agreements that we we may sound you know a little bit um, a little bit pessimistic a little bit over over worry sometimes there are huge opportunities that come through trade agreements for right. for things like working together on uh, on new standards new international standards with trading partners you know we've seen examples of that with the with with the US in the medical devices area there are, you know the huge opportunities um uh, through uh through joint work we very much um welcome uh provisions within trade agreements for standards dialogue uh, anything that helps to um maximize and uh, capitalize on the role of standards to uh, to bring down by you know bring down barriers to trade and improve bilateral trade so you know we we're very keen on what stand, what what sorry what uh, trade agreements can offer but we need to get a few things right in um sort of in the let's say in the, in the more sort of regulatory and the standards regulatory nexus um that uh, i think are really important so firstly the first priority is maintaining the uk's regulatory autonomy so this is how government chooses to use standards in support of regulation so you know we must ensure that for us, it's very important to ensure that foreign governments or private actors cannot use trade agreement provisions to to force the UK to designate private standards or national standards that that are not uh, that have not been developed through the international system. I think that's that's really important, so that so that you know government maintains um, its uh, oversight um, over uh, over regulation and how standards are used in um, support of regulation. So that's the first priority. The second is to ensure that the UK stakeholders maintain the control over the content of standards. So this is, you know, this community of of of, of stakeholders, businesses, consumers, regulators, um, continue to control the content of standards used as a means of regulatory conformity in the UK. So those three thousand five hundred standards around around. That number that today provide conformity of um, uh, uh, presumption of conformity with with regulatory requirements, um, you know, UK stakeholders should at all costs maintain their control over the content of those standards. So, oh, the government, UK government, should only designate standards for the purposes of purposes of regulatory conformity that have had that guaranteed UK stakeholder input. Um, thirdly, uh, guaranteeing the sort of full um, reciprocity. With trading partners. Now, I mentioned the US before and their, their differing models, the differing model of, 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 of standards, but also of regulation. You have, you know, federal, federal state level, also municipal, county level ordinances, a whole host of different regulation. Whereas the UK has a much more straightforward um, uh, framework for market access. So, in, in, with countries that have different models of, 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 of government, different tiers of government, um, we should be making sure that they are in a position to fully reciprocate. So if we were to recognise, um, for example, a US standard within in the UK, um, through through a trade agreement what is there you know what is the guarantee that you know federal level you know the state of ohio or michigan in the us is going to be able to reciprocate or is going to you know what mechanism is, is in place to uh, in, from, from the federal government in the us to enforce um, the recognition of british standards in the us now you know it's pretty clear that the federal government does, does not have that 
uh, power within the US system to enforce that recognition. So you know, the US wouldn't be in a position to reciprocate. So, you know, being really clear that, that we need to have guaranteed full reciprocity with, tr- with trading partners. So only making commitments with regards to standards and conformity assessment if the trading partner can reciprocate effectively and fully. Um, that's that's uh, one, the third point. And then finally, the, the, the upholding the independence of the standard system and making sure that that, that that model that we have of full inclusion is maintained. So, you know, while you know, standards development is done in the public interest in the UK and BS role is, a, role is to officially recognised by government as a public good, it's not a government function in the UK to, um, to uh, develop standards. Trade agreements should not enable foreign governments to interfere either directly or indirectly with the standards development process in the UK. Now, we're a bit concerned with respect to the, again, to the US uh, and how um, the... Uh, U.S. Has, um, has negotiated um, provisions with respect to uh, the involvement of um, U.S. actors within the standards development process of uh, their trading partners in USMCA with Canada and Mexico. Um, we're, we're a bit concerned there because there is the the possibility, the concern that um, that um, specific. Uh, you know, co- corporate interests that do not have a base or a legitimate base within the UK that are not one of our stakeholders um, would use a tr- would use trade agreement provisions to uh, influence um, the you know the, the technical work we have within the UK or influence the national position when they don't have a link to the UK that legitimizes their presence. So that's uh, that, that's the that's the final point. So four um, four key what we call parameters for success um, for what success for for from trade agreements looks like from BSI's perspective. Our thanks to Eric Wickstrom and Frank Faraday for their contributions to this episode. To find out more about the relationship between standards and international trade, visit bsigroup.com and search trade. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. just heard a stripped media production.